leadership than anything that has ever happened in the entire history of the church. It's that big a deal. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. Now, in just a moment, we're going to stand together and read God's Word as we do. If they're young children, you want to take them out because it is a rather sensitive subject, then uh, obviously we want to give you the opportunity to do that. I hope not everybody will leave, but if we have young children that need to slip out, we certainly understand that. As we talk this morning about the number one threat to the church today, we're going to be in John chapter 5. I want to ask you to follow along with me, if you would. Would you stand with me, please, as we honor God's Word together? John chapter 5, beginning with verse number 1, says this, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Verse number 14. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Our fathers, we join our hearts in prayer. We're going to tackle a, a subject today that is the lifeblood of our ministry and what we do. But Father, it's a subject that has been ignored by so many people and that has especially been ignored by the church to her own detriment. And until we face this head on and until we deal with this issue that so many men and women struggle with as we're about to see, this will undermine everything that we're trying to do. So I pray this morning that you would speak to us very clearly. Let me get out of the way that we would only hear what you have to say. For this is our prayer in the name of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. So I said a moment ago, and as David said, we do have a ministry. We have some resources that I'm going to talk to you about later, some books that are at the table. Uh, I want you to meet my wife. She's uh, more of this ministry than I am. She does so much with women and so much of the ministration that has to be done with us as well. Beth, would you stand? I want everyone to meet her. Give her a hand. Isn't she beautiful? We have been married for 36 years, and um, as David said, pastored three churches, uh, planted one in Houston area, pastored in Gainesville, and then back at First Baptist Conroe before we moved to Florida to be near our son in 2014. We have launched this national ministry together where I work with porn and sex addicts. She works largely with their spouses and walks them through their own personal recovery. I want you to meet her and talk to her about that after the service. The year was 1980. I was a student at Houston Baptist University. My first church job, back then we called it youth director, now you would call it student pastor. It's part-time. It was a pretty small church. It's where Beth and I actually met. And one Sunday night, we had had a youth rally at the church. My brother, who was a couple years older than me, came in to preach. We had a music group there to sing. So we had the service in the sanctuary, and then all the students moved over to the fellowship hall, 
And there were probably 40 or 50 of us, and we were getting set up, ready for some music and for my brother to speak, when one of the students walked over from one of the other buildings into the fellowship hall and got my attention. I walked off to the side because I could tell there was something pretty big going on. He, he said, I won't alarm you or anything, but the sanctuary's on fire. I'm like, well, yeah, you don't want to alarm me over that. The church is on fire. And he said, yeah, there's, uh, I don't think it's a bad fire yet, but there's smoke pouring out. And I, I thought you should know. And so, you know, I was a pretty educated young man. I knew what that meant. So I walked over to my brother and, and I, I got his attention and he had the microphone in his hand. I said, Jim, this is what we're going to do. The sanctuary, which just a few feet away, is on fire. And so I'm going to slip out. I'm going to go find a phone. I'm going to call the fire department. But while I do that, I need you to stay calm. And I need you to very calmly get all of the students to exit the other side of the building so that they'll be removed from the building and from harm into safety since the church is on fire. And he said, okay, I got it. I got it. This guy said, you're going to stay calm. He said, I got it. No problem. You make the call. I'll take care of this. And so I turned, I started to leave the room to go make the call to the fire department. My brother took the microphone and as loud as anyone ever could say it, he screamed the word fire and made an enormous scene. But it was a scene that needed to be made because the church was on fire. I want to use that illustration to, to give you some facts that you may not be aware of. In fact, I'm sure you're not. And I've written a book called Porn in the Pew that you can see after the service. It's got a ton of statistics in it. In a day in which we live today, when 62%, I don't want you to miss this, 62% of the men in our churches are viewing pornography at least once a month, it's time we made a scene in the church. In a day in which 37% of our pastors are viewing porn, it's time that somebody made a scene about that. In a time in 2019, when the average age for a child to first view pornography for the first time is at the age of nine, it is time that somebody made a scene. At a time when pornography is ripping apart more churches and more staffs and doing more damage than anything else today, and only 7% of our churches have any response, any answer, any resource, any program, any answer to this problem, it is time to make a scene. In fact, Beth and I have come from Florida to Texas today for two reasons. One, for the barbecue, and two, to make a scene. Because this is something to make a scene about. Now, why is this a problem? Why would Josh McDowell say that pornography is the greatest threat to the, in the history of the church? I got an email this week from a woman named uh, Marnie Faree. She runs the Bethesda workshops in Atlanta, Georgia. I did some training under her just last year. And, and I got an email that said, my heart is so broken because a young pastor in one of our churches, it was found out that he was viewing pornography on his church computer. And when they found out, they cost him his ministry, and, and, and he's been devastated by this, didn't know where to turn, didn't know what to do, and was just thrust in enormous depression and he took a gun and he ended his life this week. It's time we make a scene. But why is this going on? What is the problem? I want to suggest to you the problem. I'm going to demonstrate it or illustrate it up here. For many of us, my age, I'm 35, when we were kids, I'm actually a little bit older than that, we all had one of these. Now, I won't ask you if you ever have one of these because you're admitting your age, so you do. It's called a tape recorder. You've got these five little buttons. I have one just like this. It says record, play, rewind, fast forward, stop, eject, and then pause. It's, I have one just like that. 
And what it was for was that you put a little cassette in there. Uh, if you're under 40, you'll know what that is. And, and it would play stuff back, or you could record on it, and you would learn stuff. So it's a listening device. Now, I want to talk to you about our brain for a minute. And I want to suggest to you that a brain is not one of these, a tape recorder. A brain is one of these. This is a camera, a very old camera, I might add, that takes pictures. And it weighs about 30 pounds. I mean, this thing's heavy. Now, what I want to suggest to you is the reason that pornography is such a problem for so many of us, and the reason I'll give you another statistic, 97% of Christians have viewed pornography at some point in their life, is because our brain is not one of these. It is not a tape recorder. Our brain is a camera. It takes in images. Now, I'm going to prove that to you. I want to ask all the guys for just a moment, and we'll talk to the women and say, I want to ask all the guys to think about three things. Number one, the first girl that you ever had a crush on. Do you remember what she looked like? Then number two, think about the first girl that you ever kissed. Do you remember what she looked like? And then number three, think about that first sexual image, that poster, or maybe it was a movie star that you saw when you were 13, 14, 15 years of age, whatever it was, that just really caught your attention. Do you still remember what that looks like? And the answer, of course, is yes. I remember my first crush, her name was Christina. I remember the first girl I kissed, her name was Lane. I remember that first image that was stuck in my head because it came from a television show in the 70s and people had this poster and, and, and I never had the poster, but all my friends said, I saw that poster and that was blazing in my mind. We remember that girl that was that first crush, that first kiss, that first image. Ladies, think about that first guy that you ever had a crush on, that first guy that you ever kissed, that, that, that image, that male image that was a sexual image for you. You remember all of those images from when you were in junior high school and in high school. And now I want to ask you this. You all remembered the first crush, the first kiss, the first poster, the image. Now, how many of you can remember a single lecture from the 12,000 hours that you spent in school from grades 1 through 12, you can't. Because our minds are not tape recorders, they are cameras. And we take in images, and I deal with guys every day of the week that tell me there is this visual image of this girlfriend or this woman that I saw or someone that I acted out with inappropriately, and this image has happened a year ago, and it's still in my head. It was five years ago, it's still in my head. It was 25 years ago, and it's still in my head because we remember what we see. We don't remember what we hear. I want you to imagine for a moment that if I was dressed today in a pink clown set, a suit, and I had a funny-looking hat that had lights going around like that. About a year from now, someone brought up my name in the church and said, you remember that guy Mark Dennison came and spoke in our church? And he's the guy that had the clown suit. Every one of you would say, well, sure, I remember that guy. Do you remember what he said? Probably not. We remember what we see more than what we hear. And so let me fast forward. That's 2019 explain why this is such a problem today. There was a time when I was a kid, don't you love that, when I was a kid, when we had a thing that was called a telephone, and it looked like this. Now, if you want to see one of these other than this one, then just go to a museum somewhere and you'll find them. But when I was, when I was a kid, we actually, uh, my grandparents, I remember going to their house in Kansas, they had a party line. Anybody here remember a party line? And what that was, it meant that if you wanted to make a call, you'd get on the phone, but the neighbor may have the same extension. You could listen in on all they're saying and wait for them to get off the phone. Then you could get on the phone and make your call. 
I mean, my, my mother was raised in a small town. Our phone number was nine. I mean, there just weren't very many people there. And so growing up, we had one of these rotary phones, and you would dial it like that. This thing plugs into a wall, and then you, you do this, you hear a dial tone, and then you dial the number. Nowadays, very few people even have a landline at all. But when we were kids, we had these because there used to be this crazy idea. No one believes this anymore, but there used to be this crazy idea that the primary purpose of a phone was to talk to people. Isn't that nuts? No one ever thinks of that anymore. Well, now instead of a rotary phone, we have one of these things. And because we carry these devices around, it's become much more than just using this to talk. I looked at my phone this morning. I had three messages, phone messages on my phone. You know how many pictures I had on my phone? I'm going to look it up. I'm just going to tell you because I don't want to lie in church. And I don't even know how to use it half the time, but it's a bunch. Okay, here we go. 26,585 pictures. Now, 27,000 or 25,000 of those are my dog, but I've got a lot of pictures because that's who we are today. Everything is visual. I read that the update to the latest iPhone that they, they took it from 12 million megapixels, or from 8 million megapixels to 12 million megapixels. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? They've updated the ability of the phone to take better images while they did not do a single thing to improve the quality of the sound because we don't use these to talk to people anymore. We use them to take in images, and that's why men that I work with all day long have gotten in trouble because we live in a world, our mind is a camera, it is not a tape recorder, we've got this phone with us all the time, and there are pornographic images that are downloaded constantly. Did you know that porn is a greater industry dollar-wise than Major League Baseball and the NBA and, and the NFL combined? There are more dollars spent on that than any industry in the world because our minds are just inundated and it's so accessible because our minds are cameras. And so against that backdrop, let's look at John chapter 5. You know the story. Jesus is walking in the city of Jerusalem, and he's there for a, a feast. We're not sure which feast it is, but as he's coming, he sees a man, the man is paralyzed, the man is healed. Now, what does that have to do with porn and sex addiction? Well, I want to show you what it does. I want to tell you four things. Number one, I want us to look at the paralysis of this man. As Jesus enters through the sheep gate at Jerusalem, it's one of the three big festivals. We don't know which one, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, doesn't matter. As a male who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, every man, every Jewish man was required to go to each of these three feasts. So Jesus is there. Now, when Jesus walks through the, 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 the gate, the sheep gate as it was known, he sees this man who is laying there by the pool of Bethesda. Now, the pool of Bethesda, as tradition had it, was a place where people could go to get healed. Now, here's how it works, or so they thought. Upstream from the pool, you could look up a few yards away and the water would bubble up occasionally. They really didn't know why, but they had this strange philosophy that what was happening was that an angel from God was flying down over the water, and the wing of the angel would brush against the water, causing the water to stir, and then anyone that would get in the pool downstream in the pool of Bethesda from where the water had bubbled by the touch of the angel would be healed, but only the first person. And so we have a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. That's 13,879 days for all of these years. 
he would drag himself down to the edge of the pool. He would look off in the distance and wait for that water to bubble. And when the water bubbled, he thought, if I could just get into the water first, I could be healed and I could walk. But it never worked because when you're paralyzed, you're rarely first in a foot race. And so the man couldn't get into the water. He couldn't get healed. He had tried everything else that was out there. I'm sure that he tried every religion and every tonic and every prayer. And, and, and doctors had come from miles around, and the man could not get well. And so the man just lay there paralyzed. And that's exactly the condition of someone who gets hooked on pornography. I have a friend. His testimony is that when he was about 12 or 13 years of age, he was exposed to pornography, and he got hooked on it to the degree that every month, at least once or twice, he looked at it when he was a teenager. When he became a young adult, he did the same thing. In his first marriage, he did it. It cost him his marriage. He got married again. It cost him his marriage. He got married a third time. She didn't know about it. He got older in his life. He went to counseling. He still did it. He prayed. He still did it. He went to church. He still had this struggle, and, and he thought he could break free, but he never could. He repented of it thousands of times, but he never could get over his porn habit. And this continued on year after year after year. He had never had from the time he was 12 or 13 years of age, a single 30-day period of time, a single month in his entire life where he could stay away from pornography until he wandered into a 12-step group and he started hearing principles that had to do with things like surrendering to God. And he began to practice those principles in his life. And I can tell you that my friend now has been clean for two and a half years as he celebrates, you're ready for this, his 93rd birthday. Let me tell you what addiction does. It takes you further than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it costs you more than you want to pay. This guy, when he was 12 or 13, it never occurred to him, if I just dab a little bit in pornography, then, then, then this is going to have me hooked until I'm 90 years old. I've never known anyone like that. But it always takes you further than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. The man was paralyzed. The paralysis of the man. Number two, notice the priority of the Savior. I love this. Bible says in John 5, verse 3, there was a great number of disabled people there that day, but there was one, verse 5 says, who had been paralyzed for 38 years. In verse 6, Jesus learned about this man. I love that. There's a crowd there, but Jesus focuses in on the individual. I want you to know that he is looking at you this morning, whatever your struggles in life are, whether it's pornography like 62% or whether it's something entirely different. And while there is an entire crowd here, he's looking right at you as an individual because that's the way he prioritizes us. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? Short little dude in the Bible. He wanted to see Jesus so bad. Jesus came to town one day. He couldn't see him. He couldn't get up close to him. He was a tax collector. No one liked him, so they always shunned him anyway. So he's in the back of the crowd. He couldn't see Christ, so he climbed up in a sycamore tree so he could see over the crowd. And the Bible says that as Jesus made his way through the crowd, he stopped right where he was. He looked up at Zacchaeus, and he said, Zacchaeus, come down for today. I want to hang out with you. I think four things rushed through that Zacchaeus' mind that day. Number one, Jesus sees me. Wow. Of this entire crowd that is here, he's looking right at me. He sees me. Number two, he knows me. He called me by my name. He wants me. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. He sees me. He knows me. He wants me. He must have me. 
the priority of the Savior, that he looks at the individual who has a struggle, the addict, the failed marriage, the disease, the struggle, whatever that is, wherever you are today, I don't know you, but I do know this, you've got a struggle going on in your life. The only person who does is the one you just haven't talked to long enough. Every one of us does. The priority of the Savior is he's looking right at you. Number three, I want you to notice the process of the addiction. There's a man for 38 years, same pattern he had fallen into. He got up in the morning, someone would bring him something to eat. He'd put on his clothes. Someone might pick him up on a mat or he might drag himself with the mat. Someone probably carried him. Otherwise, if he drug himself, he wouldn't need the mat. And so they dropped him near the water. He greeted all the other guys around him. They'd seen each other every day for years. And then they all turned their heads and they waited for that water to bubble up, asking themselves, I've been sick for 38 years, but maybe today it's going to be different. I'm going to keep coming to the same pool, doing the same thing, trying the same strategy with the same results, but I'm still looking, thinking maybe it's going to be different today. That's the process of addiction. Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Just thinking maybe if I just pray harder, maybe if I just read another Bible verse, maybe, maybe if I just try a little bit harder, this pattern just continues. Here's how it works. There are six steps every time someone views pornography. They think it, they plan it, they do it, they hate it, they cover it, and then they do it again. They think it. I remember that image. I remember the habit. I remember what I saw. I'm, I'm thinking about it. And then after they think it, they plan it. This is how I'm going to make this happen. Or maybe some other form of the addiction. Seeing someone outside of marriage, whatever it is. They think it. They plan it. They do it. And then there's enormous remorse. It says, I am so sorry for what I've done. I repent of what I've done. I will never do this again for the rest of my life. I feel horrible for what I've done. And so they hate it. And someone walks in the room, they slap that computer shut, they cover it, and they swear, I will never do this as long as I live again. And then, like my 93-year-old friend, they do it again. This process just repeats itself over and over again. I'll put it in language every one of us can understand. You like donuts? Of course you do. If you're not, your brain dead. There's something wrong. You need to be seen by a psychiatrist. You're just crazy. Everybody loves donuts. Well, we live in Florida. And we just got something in our town of Bradenton, Florida, that's just awesome. I mean, I, I must just be a man of great prayer because I've been praying for this miracle. And God answered my prayer. We have a Shipley's Donuts now in Florida. And it's only five miles from where I live, so I go every week. I mean, I love Shipley's Donuts. Every time I come to Texas, I go to Shipley's Donuts. We, we flew into Houston the other day and um, went to the Astro game. Uh, Houston, by the way, they have this thing called a Major League Baseball team. Y'all don't have that so much up here. But well, So I went to the baseball game. And, um, but before we did that, I know where the Shipley's is. And so I've got to go to the Shipley's Donut, but should I do it or not? I'm addicted to these. And I could, ar I argue this back and forth. I go through this process every time and I'm thinking, you know, it's just a little bit of sugar. It's just a little bit of chocolate. It's just a little bit of bad. And so is it really bad? You know, I've been eating pretty good. Maybe it's okay to just have one donut today. And so as I was playing this out in my mind, I know exactly where the Shipley's is at airport at I-45 in South Houston. So as we're driving down the road, I just put it on God and I prayed. I say, God, here's what we're going to do. I don't know if I should or not. So I'm going to leave it up to you. I'm going to pull into the Shipley's parking lot 
And if there is an open parking spot in that spot right in front of the main door, then I will take that as a clear sign from heaven that you want to bless me and anoint me with a chocolate donut. And I will pull in. If there's not a spot, that will be your way of saying to me, you're not supposed to have a donut. So I threw that out to God. And you know what happened? Sure enough, on my 27th trip around the block, there was an open spot right in front of the door. So it was obviously God's will that I have the donut. See, that's what addicts do. We can rationalize anything. This pattern, this process of addiction. Then I want to give you one last one. And that is the, the, the way that God heals, the process of healing, the pattern of addiction, the process of healing. You're in that 62% today. You're in that, in that vast majority that, that is in the church today, especially in a younger crowd like this. When I don't see anyone here that looks like they're over 30. In a young crowd like this, you, you're, you're in that group that, that struggles with this. So what are you going to do? I want to give you three words. Hope you'll jot them down. Word number one, you'll never get well of any sin, any addiction, any problem, any struggle without this. It's the secret sauce. When I was a kid, we went to Jack in the Box. And they, they had this, they call it the secret sauce. Someone put it under a lab, found out it was half ketchup, half mayonnaise. The secret was out. But they call it the secret sauce. Here's the secret sauce. I don't care if your struggle is pornography or some other form of sexual addiction or whatever it is. This is the secret sauce. It always starts here. Desperation. You've got to be desperate. Verse 6, Jesus walks over to this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. This man who's laying in front of the pool of Bethesda yet again. And he asks him the craziest question that you'll ever read in the Bible. I mean, I would challenge you to find anything that seems more absurd than this. Jesus walks past the crowd. He walks over to this man who's paralyzed, laying in front of the water, and he looks over at him, and, 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 and this is what he said. Do you want to be well? Now, I, I don't mean to sound disrespectful, but if that was me, and I'm laying on the ground paralyzed for 38 years, I've not been able to walk. And someone's looking over at me and saying, do you want to be well? I'm thinking that is the most stupid question I've ever heard in my entire life. Of course I want to be well. So why do you think Jesus asked him that? I mean, I want you to think about that. He wants to be well or he wouldn't be there. So why is Jesus asking him, do you want to be well? The answer is found in the original language of the text. What Jesus was asking him was, do you really, 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 really want to be well? Are you desperate? Do you want it more than anything else in this world? Because if you don't, I'm not here to do business. You've got to be desperate. You know what the problem is with the 62%? You know why at the end of the service when, when we announce that Beth and I will be at the table over here and we've got four books that will help you with this struggle? that will walk you through the process of healing. And 62%, five out of eight of the people in the building, probably more than that because this is a younger than average crowd, why people don't just go rushing over to the table and say, I, I, I want the resource. I want to be in the recovery group. I want the recovery plan. I, I, want to, I want to get well. I want to be done with this. It's because you want it, but you don't really want it bad enough. 
When people contact our office, I used to pray, God, I just pray that you would provide healing for this person and, and help them to get well and, 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 and don't let them have to suffer too much and don't let there be too much pain and, and let me walk them through this. Their, their, their sin doesn't need to be known by anyone. Let, let's just kind of give them, let them land easily and, and protect them through this process. And now I'm more apt to say, God, I pray you'd absolutely crush them. I want to hear misery. I want to see brokenness. Because without desperation, there never is healing. Jesus is saying, do you want it bad enough? In AA, they call it hitting bottom. And until you hit bottom, you never bounce back up. I've attended over 600 12-step meetings as a part of my own recovery. I have seen dozens of men come into groups and say, I'm here I'm ready. Let's go. And they, three or four weeks later, they're gone. Because they were never desperate. And I used to go up and meet them all, all the new guys. Hey, here's my name. I never, let's talk. I want to help you. Let's do it. And I don't, I don't mess with that anymore. But if I see that one guy that walks in the room and he's broken, and he says, my sin has cost me my marriage, it has cost me my reputation. It has cost me my income. It has cost me my health. I've got a disease, and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know where to turn. I am here today because I am out of answers, and I'll die if I don't get help. That's the guy that I'm drawn to. Could it be, we don't know, but could it be that the reason Jesus only talked to this one guy and ignored all the rest is because he already knew the answer before he asked the question. This was the one who was really desperate. Because, ladies and gentlemen, until you're desperate, you will never get well. It always, always, always begins with that. You've got to crash and burn. You never get well until the pain is greater than the pleasure. Desperation. Number two, surrender. There has to be total surrender. Jesus said in verse 8, pick up your mat and walk. There's one problem. He hadn't been healed. He didn't know how to walk. He couldn't walk. He pick up his mat. A lot of good that was going to do him. He couldn't walk. He could pick it up, waist down, paralyzed, can't walk. Didn't make sense. You know, sometimes God asks us to do things that don't make a lot of sense. Until we're willing to do the improbable, God does not do the impossible. But when we do the improbable, God will do the impossible. When we will do that which we never thought we would do, step into healing, whatever that costs, go through a recovery program such as we offer, until we do the improbable, God cannot, will not, does not do the impossible. But when we do the improbable, God does the impossible. And the improbable is the hardest thing for every human being in this room to do. It's one thing that has every one of us the same, and that is surrender. No one likes it. Do you? I mean, the greatest lie that's ever told is, I don't care where we eat, honey. Where would you like to eat? That's a lie. He's lying when he says that. He does care. Now, he's just being a gentleman. That's good. There's something wrong with that. But every time my wife ever says, I don't care where we eat, where would you like to eat? I don't care where we eat, where would you like to eat? It's like, I want to eat wherever she wants to eat. But boy, I sure hope it's over here. Because no one wants to surrender. Nobody does. I mean, except the French in time of war. I mean, that's another deal. No one wants to surrender. 
Everybody wants to be in control. Everyone wants to call the shots. Everyone wants to find their own way out. Every addict, whether it's tobacco or gambling or alcohol or sex or pornography or whatever that is, they all want to figure it out themselves. Nobody wants to sit in the chair and say, I don't know. I'm out of answers. Whatever you say, I'll do it. But until you get to that point, you never get well. And then there's a third part to healing. Here's the process of the healing. Desperation, surrender, community. Verse 14, after the man was healed, he shows up at the temple. Jesus sees him there in the fellowship because you weren't declared well until the priest saw that you were well. So that's why he goes there and he's already knowing intuitively, I need to be with other people. A friend of mine named Michael Leahy has an organization called Bravehearts. It's for men that are struggling with sex addictions based in Atlanta, Georgia. Did this massive study that found that of all the men that get well, that get over pornography issues, one in 10,000 does it on his own. The other 9,999 only got there in community with other guys, or if it was a woman with other women, with others that helped them and walked them through that process. And so what I'm saying is that if you're in that 62% today, if pornography is something you've dabbled in, a sex addiction is something you thought I never thought in a million years I would be there, but I find myself, I keep going back to it, I keep looking, I think I can stop, but I never, never stop. I know it's there, I don't talk about it. Nobody knows it, no one's aware of this habit, no one knows it's there except me, but I'm tired of it, I'm sick and tired of it. If you're desperate, if you're surrendered to God and you'll be in community, then there is hope. We're going to pray in just a moment. I want to tell you what we offer. I've got some books here. One is called Porn in the Pew. It's the first book I wrote on the subject. It's really for church leaders, but it lays out the statistics for uh, how bad pornography is among students today and middle age and women and men and pastors and non-pastors and, and, and what the answer of the church ought to be. I have a 90-day recovery guide. This is something I take guys through uh, 90 Days of Recovery. That's the workbook that goes with that, a book called Porn Free in 40 Days. And a, the only one that's ever been written, a, a 365-day devotional book on sexual integrity, just on the issue of sexual purity. Each of these four books is $10. Today, we're running a special. You can get all four for $39.95. So if you're interested in that, I really do hope that you'll come and see us at the table. In your worship guide, there is a card I want you to look at. And I hope many of you will take a moment to fill this out. You might as well look at it because I'm going to read it to you anyway. It says... I would like to receive the Daily Recovery Minute devotional. If you'd like to receive a devotional in your inbox, I write one every day. We have hundreds of subscribers. It takes one minute to read. It's very short. It's a biblical devotion on how to get freedom from sexual or pornography, um, any kind of sin, impurity, addiction. If you'll pray for our ministry, there's still hope. We want to raise up 120 prayer partners. We'd love for you to, to check that. Give us your name, your email address. I'm interested in one of the following services, personal coaching as I walk men through recovery. My wife works with women one-on-one -on -one all over the country uh, that, that their husbands or uh, their boyfriends are addicted to pornography. We offer one-day intensives for couples, recovery groups, a 30-day plan. If you have an interest in any of this or you'll just pray for us, we want you to fill that card out, drop it in the basket on your way out in just a few minutes because we want to be able to connect with you and we want to be able to help. Before we pray, a quick story. There was a man who lived in West Texas. He was an oil tycoon. He had more money than you could imagine. And he was very eccentric. 
And so every year on July 4th, he brought all of his employees from all over the state together at his ranch in West Texas. They had a huge dance, had the band in, they had a party, and, and they just had an awesome time. And then during the activity, he would always do one thing that was kind of quirky, that was a little different every year. This particular year, after everyone had had the huge barbecue feast and the band had quit playing, he got up on stage, he took the microphone, and he welcomed everyone to his property. And he said, now, for all of the men that are here, there were 300 men there that day, I have an incredible opportunity for you. Follow me over here to the backside of the property. 300 men followed him over there, and they found on the backside of the property installed a huge swimming pool, and it was carved out in the shape of the state of Texas. And it was this huge pool. And he said, now, I want all 300 men line up on that side of the pool. And when I reach in and I pull out my pistol and I fire a shot, I want you to dive into the pool and swim to the other side. And whichever one of you can get to the other side of the pool first is going to win a prize. You will get one of three things. You get to choose which one you want. I will give you $1 million in cash. When you get out of the pool, I'll have it waiting. I'll give it to you then. Or if you would rather, I will give you 1,000 acres of my finest property. Or if you would rather, the third option is I will give you my daughter's hand in marriage and you'll inherit all of this one day. So if you win the race, a million dollars, a thousand acres, my daughter's hand in marriage, he pulled the gun out and as he was about to fire the pistol, they looked into the water and they saw there was a bit of a catch. He had filled the water with alligators and crocodiles and then he fired the gun. They heard just one lonely splash. One brave heart was in the water and he began to swim across the pool while the others watched from safety. He beat back the crocodiles and alligators. He gave it his best effort. He finally made it to the other side. He crawled out of the pool. He was beaten. He was bruised and he was bloodied, but he was okay. And the people cheered and the old tycoon welcomed him on the other side and said, young man, I'm absolutely amazed that you're able to do that. Congratulations. So what would you like? What I have is yours. Do you want the million dollars? Do you want the thousand acres? Or do you want my daughter's hand in marriage? And the young man said, sir, I don't want any of that. He said, then what do you want? He said, I just want one thing. I want the name of the guy who shoved me into the pool. <laughs> Let me tell you something about pornography and sex addiction. It's infested with all kinds of stuff. Recovery. But you got to dive in in order to get well. You got to be desperate. You've got to be surrendered. You got to be in community. If you're ready, then dive in the pool. Our fathers, we pray together. We know from personal experience that recovery is not for the faint of heart. It is not a journey that is traversed in a day. It's not easy. It's hard work. It takes a lot of time. It's almost impossible. In fact, without you, it is impossible. But with you, there is still hope. And so, Father, I pray right now that your Spirit would speak to every one of our hearts, particularly those that are struggling in this area. Now, if there's someone here who's never been born again, who's never trusted Christ as Savior, we want them to turn to you to repent and turn to you in faith today. Someone needs to be a part of this church. That's awesome. 
But the theme of the moment is those who struggle with the number one threat to the church, the number one sin in the church, the greatest addiction that is ripping apart so many lives and so many marriages today, so many men, so many women. Pornography, sex addiction. So if you're here this morning and this is you, in just a moment, after I pray, the band will sing. And then Beth and I will be standing in the back at the table. You can come and look at some of our resources. Drop the card in the basket. Come and talk to us. If you just pray for us, drop the card in the basket for that. You want help, check that on the card. If you want to visit with us, we'll stay as long as we need to. Because we want you to find the help that you can get from something that could take 38 years if you don't get a handle on it right now. So Holy Spirit, would you take over now? And may we open our hearts to you with hearts of desperation. They say, I've got to get well. I want it desperately. I must do this. I must get help because I'm suffering. I'm tired of it. Or for the woman that is here that her husband, whether he's in recovery or not, she knows that she needs to be in recovery. And she is tired of doing this alone. She's tired of walking this pathway in isolation. God, we pray she would come and see us and talk to Beth. Spirit, I pray that you would arouse within each of us a desperation of total surrender to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.